Good morning, Church of the Holy Spirit. Um, if I've not had the pr- privilege or pleasure of meeting you, my name is Mike Massey. Uh, we've been a part of this family um, since 1994. That is crazy, crazy, crazy. Such a privilege to be with you guys. A place that speaks the word of God, stands on truth. Um, so a number of years ago, and, and I've been on many, many mission trips over the years. We take groups a lot. 50-some-plus mission trips over the years. And I don't say that with pride or arrogance, but you see things all around the world when you, when you go to all these different places. And there were a number of years ago, right before COVID, that we were in Guatemala and doing a freshwater uh, dig or well dig for a village, a remote village in Guatemala. And our team was there excited all week long to, to kind of unveil this well, this well project. So the people that were in this village who'd only had stagnant putrid water for years would finally get fresh water and would no longer have disease and all the things that come with the putrid water that they were getting. And on the day of the unveiling, we were so excited with our expectations of how they would respond. And what surprised us was they hated the water. It disgusted them. They were so used to the putrid, stagnant water that the fresh water was disgusting. And isn't that true about us? Oftentimes when we're given truth, we don't understand how fresh and freeing and liberating it is. And we find it putrid and disgusting. And it takes time sometimes, if ever, some of those villagers never started drinking the fresh water. What a shame. And that is much like when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount in chapters five through seven of Matthew. He he brings this, this fresh water to the people beginning in chapter five, and I'm going to attempt very, very minimally to to deal with the second half of chapter five that we just read the very end there. But he brings these fresh water, these he takes the belief system that the people had back then and maybe still have today, that to be a law-abiding, good person, he flips it all on its head and he says, there's a different way. He flips it all upside down. Everything that they had known, he flips it upside down throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And he did it in these passages in chapter five by saying things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you a different way. I've got a new way something that disrupts your way of thinking. He said it regarding anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and what we just read, loving your enemies. And he says, for instance, you believed your whole life that all you have to do is not commit murder and you're in the clear, you're A-OK. But I'm telling you, if you have anger in your heart towards somebody, I'm raising the standard that you've now committed murder in your heart and you are facing judgment. You're a murderer. Then he says things like, you've always heard that as long as you don't commit adultery physically with somebody, as long as you don't do the deed, then you're good. But I'm here to tell you that's not true. If you simply have lust in your heart with somebody, then you're an adulterer. And you gotta cut out your eye or cut off your hand. That draws a crowd, doesn't it? And then he says things like, hey, 
I told you before, you heard before, excuse me, that it's okay if you, it's okay to hate your enemies as long as you love your neighbors, but I'm telling you, no, no longer. You not only have to love your enemies, you gotta pray for those who persecute you. And then he closes the whole thing that we just read by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What a standard. It's impossible. What did they do with that? What do we do with that? See, it would be really easy at this point for me to focus in here this morning on your bad behavior, not mine, because I'm good, on your bad behavior and talk about your sin. I'm gonna channel my inner Baptist Pentecostal holiness minister. Your sin. Nobody ever heard a pastor like that. Come on. And we could all slump our shoulders and think, oh, he hit me over the head with the holy two by four. It feels so good. The power of, of sin to destroy and it separates us from God and you are dirty, rotten sinners. You guys didn't go to the church I went to growing up, did you? And here's the thing, we actually are really more comfortable with that. We're at ease talking about our sin, our struggle. It feels so holy and pious. We walk in the door on a Sunday morning and someone says, how you doing, Quig? Oh, let go and let God. I'm struggling, my sin, it's overtaken me. I, listen, listen, I'm not suggesting, I'm, we Christians, we often love to get lots and lots of attention to, and, 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 and sin press in church. And we love to focus on that. And I'm not suggesting that there are not times that we talk about sin or that we address behaviors. I'm an attorney. I do that all day long with everybody. Like I'm not saying there's not times for that, but our behaviors will never change as long as or if our focus is on our sin. Never happen. The cure is righteousness. I'd prefer to talk about righteousness. See, righteousness should get all of our focus all day, every day. See, we will only be transformed and our behaviors will only start to transform to the degree that we receive and believe and stand in the righteousness that we have because of Jesus Christ. That's so exciting, Mike. I can't even stand it. You've just spoken words of life, but I can't even. Righteousness. It, it doesn't get the press that sin gets, does it? And yet it alone holds all the power of transformation and freedom. What is righteousness? We talk about it, we read it, but what really is righteousness? Righteousness means right before God or right standing before God. Sin is not the point of the gospel. Sin is not the point of the gospel. It's rightness with God. Righteousness is the whole point. It's the whole point. It's, it's the point of the, the cross, of the blood, of the covenant, of eternity, of creation. It's the whole point. And it isn't just that we've been rescued from our sin. That's a part of it. But it's so much more. We've been rescued into and set free into rightness with God. 
And yet, it's probably one of the points that we believers struggle with the most on an ongoing basis because we, we give so much power to sin. Let this truth, I've said it again, I'm gonna say it again and again and again. Let this truth sink in, not just a theory, but a reality. Like Oppenheimer in, in the movie, he said a number of times, theory can only take you so far. This can only take us so far if it remains theory. It's got to become our reality. And it is, it is this, you have been made right with God. End of story. I could stop right now. That's it. Anyone, anyone who is in Christ Jesus is a brand new creation. The old is gone. The new is come. You forever have an unchangeable position of rightness before God, not because of your good deeds or good behaviors, and you cannot lose it because of your bad behaviors. See, most believers... Most followers of Jesus live thinking every day is a struggle to just stay out of the courtroom. Think about that. One day I've done well and I didn't get called before the judge, but the next day I act like garbage and I get called to account for my sin and get punished. We've convinced ourselves that it's a good day if I could just get through the day and not stand in the courtroom before the judge where he sits with crossed angry arms and a scowl on his face and a gavel just waiting to punish me. Ooh, I'm gonna get him. That's not righteousness and that's not truth. Righteousness means we never ever step foot in the courtroom and we never did. See, for the longest time, I don't know if this resonates with you and my upbringing, I was in a, raised in a godly home, but, but for, for the longest time, I believed that God couldn't stand to look at me, couldn't stand it, couldn't look at me unless it was through the blood of Jesus. It was like I was covered by a blanket of blood. But what happened if my foot popped out? What if he saw my foot? I'm no longer covered by the blood. It was, it was if, I, I, it was almost like I believed I was behind this massive cutout of Jesus. And G, God only saw me because he saw the cutout of Jesus. And I was approved of because he saw the cutout of Jesus, but he didn't see me, he just saw the cutout of Jesus. And so then our job was to get more and more people behind that cutout. But what happens when it starts getting crowded back there? And suddenly I'm getting squeezed out. And, and then, oh, oh, he sees me. This doesn't resonate. <laughs> I feel like I'm such a fool up here and you guys are like, oh yeah, cool, all right. See, I sincerely believed that and I honestly thought that that was humble and I thought that was holy. But it was the opposite of humility and it was the opposite of holiness. See, I did this because I had had it drilled in my head, in my brain, that I was basically a criminal that was back and forth before the judge and in and out of the courtroom. As long as I believed, as long as you believe, as long as we believe even a small part of that, then we will never walk in freedom ever, ever. And like me, believers have often convinced themselves that this is holiness, but it is not. 
I don't care how holy it feels. It's the opposite of holiness. This last week, my beautiful daughter, Rachel, and her husband, Will, had my, and I say my with an emphasis, my first grandbaby. Mason Tiller Urban. It's really cool because they, they believe the Lord gave them that name, that he would be a builder and a planter in urban places. Wow. There's nothing like it. People, grandparents told me, but there's nothing, nothing like it. My beautiful wife of 29 years, she worked long and hard to figure out what she's going to be called with her name. She refuses to be granny, grandma, or anything like that. So she is Shugs. Shugs. And the kids have been calling her Shugs now for the last nine months. And it's like it's taking. It's really taking. But what's more exciting is my name. And it's going to be Maverick. Mav. <laughs> Next picture, please. There we go. Mav. Yes, haters can hate, 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 as the great Tiffany or whatever her name is, Swift, Taylor Swift says. You can hate, hate, hate all you want. I'm going to be Mav, and I am not above bribery or anything I have to do to get those grandbabies to call me Mav. You want the sucker, son? What's my name? My daughter and son-in-law, they owe me some money that I was never going to make them repay. But I'm like, as long as you get that kid to call me Mav, you don't owe me the $1,000. We're good. But can you imagine, can you imagine Will, my son-in-law, holding that baby Mason this week, holding him in his arms and looking at him and saying, you're such a dirty, rotten sinner, you piece of garbage. Look at you. You're so far away from me. You can't, you got to earn your way into this family. You got to do it through blood, sweat, and tears. Don't you dare think you get to call me Papa until you earn your... Or can you imagine Mason looking up and going, Daddy, I'm a piece of garbage. I'm just, a, I'm so sorry I was born. That is ridiculous. But that's how ridiculous we are when we try to earn our way into the family of God and think that our behavior can earn us or take away our position that we never could earn. It's all the work of the cross and it is finished. Righteousness means that we have forever been transformed. We are no longer criminals in the courtroom with a judge. We are now family. We are sons. We're daughters in the living room being held by our father. And because of righteousness, I forever stand in right relationship with my Abba and he sees me. He sees me, not the cutout. He does not see some fabricated cutout or some blanket of blood or through rose-colored glasses. He sees me and he says, he is mine and he has right standing with me. Wow. Righteousness takes you out of the courtroom and puts you in the living room and now you stand in right relationship. Now listen, maybe, and this is true for some in here, it's true for times in my life, maybe I've done something to grieve his heart or, or maybe some of my decisions have grieved him and, or I've run away from him or I've stopped engaging in him with him or I've engaged in behavior that is quenching the spirit in my life because 
I'm doing my own thing. Or maybe like the prodigal son, I'm in a pig pit of my own making. And I'm facing horrible consequences, not punishment, but consequences of my own choices. But that never changes the reality, never changes the reality that I stand in the living room with my loving father in righteousness. And I can never lose that position. Righteousness puts me in the living room. It's deception that puts me back in the courtroom. It's lies. Righteousness puts me in the living room. It's only lies and deception to the degree that I'm believing those that puts me back in the courtroom. Think about the deception that the prodigal son was living in as he was in that pig pen. He said to himself, you've heard the story a thousand times, right? We've read books about it. He, he says those things. He says, I'm not worthy to be a son. Surely, if I go back to my dad's house, surely, and he's no longer, I don't even get to call him dad anymore. Surely, if I go back to that house, I'll get to live in the basement or the outhouse or something. Surely, he'll take me back like that because that's the only place that I'm worthy. And you know the story. He's a far way off. And the father is pacing, watching the horizon, waiting for the son. And when he sees him a far way off, the wealthy man that he was pulled up his skirts that would have been binding his legs and he would not have been wearing undergarments. And in an unashamed, naked, unabashed way, he runs and sprints to his son and he starts lavishing him with kisses over and over and over. And the son starts to give the speech, I'm not worthy. And the father doesn't even entertain it, doesn't listen to it. He says, I don't care what, he, the son who was lost is home, he's found. Put the robe on his back, put the shoes on his feet, put the ring on his finger, kill the fatted calf, we're having a dance party. And moments later, this son who had been in the pig pit is dancing with his father. That is righteousness. The son had right standing, not because of his worth, but simply because of his birth. And so when Jesus says at the end of Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's referring to righteousness. Jesus was saying it's impossible for you to, to be good enough. It's impossible. You might as well not even try as it's a waste of your time, but I can make you perfect. Do you trust me? It's called grace. It's called grace. We've sung about it so much this morning. Mercy and grace, they go hand in hand. And I define mercy, I don't think I made this up, but mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And grace is getting so much more than you could possibly think or imagine and so much more than you could deserve. To understand that example, I think, I think I have to give a very horrific example to get us to understand what mercy and grace is. And it's got to shock our consciences. And so this would be mercy that someone takes my entire family, that brand new grandbaby, my daughter and my sons and their, the spouses and, and they murder them in the streets and drag them behind their cars and put them up on poles for all to look at and burn them in the streets. Mercy would be that I don't bring an army and destroy them and kill them. And not only do I not kill them, I forgive them. But grace, grace, unmerited favor. Not only do I, do I not kill them and forgive them, I invite them into my home. I give them 
the best room in the palace. I give them access to everything I own, all my bank accounts. I give them a seat at the dinner table and I adopt them as a son or a daughter and, and, and I call them son or daughter and they have access to me 24 seven and they ha- are given a stake in the inheritance, an equal stake, not just a minimal stake, but an equal stake in the inheritance. That's grace. And that is what will transform us to the degree that we understand and receive and believe it. Remember, Quig said this a couple weeks ago, it's his anger that leads us to repentance. It's our good deeds that lead us to repentance. It's our groveling. No, it's his kindness. It's his kindness. And repentance is not just turning from my sin or what I do when I've done something wrong. Repentance is something I stay in all day long, every day, running to the Father. Whether I've done good things or bad things, I live in a posture of, oh my goodness, you have made me right with you. And I'm gonna run to you. Why do I tell you this? Why do I harp on this this morning? Because I think many of us are living in one of two places often. Either we're striving so hard, trying to make ourselves approved or good enough to be approved of by the Father. To which the author of Galatians, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, do you think you can be perfected by the flesh? Or we are often living in a despair and a bondage thinking we've been cut off from God. Our behavior has made us too bad, too dirty. And in reality, both have forgotten their name, their calling, their position in the family that we did not or could not ever possibly earn. The Chosen has a great depiction of this. Mary of Magdala Mary Magdalene, it's the very beginning season when she first encounters Jesus and her whole life as a young woman, she was called by her father, Mary. And the name Mary meant beloved or most loved. But no longer is she known as Mary. She's known as Lilith and she's comfortable with that name. And Lilith means demon or, or belonging to the night. And so she's in this place, locked in bondage of belief that there's no way out, no rescue from her demons. And then she meets Jesus. Hi, she smells anyway. I don't know what else I can do to help you. Give me that. Lots of it. That's not going to solve your problems. It's meant to distract from them. No more preaching. Just give it to me. Lilith, please listen to what I'm Don't touch me. 
Lily. Lily. Lily, are you okay? I... I have to go. Leave me alone. says the Lord who created you and he who formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. As the praise team comes, as they come up to, and we're going to sing Reckless Love, not to try to manipulate anybody. The rails will be open. If you just want to come up and worship or pray or call in the name of the Lord, but I, please don't grovel. Stand. If you want to come to the side rails to pray with somebody. Like, the Lord does not look upon you and say, you dirty, rotten sinner in spite of what we've done or have not done. He looks upon you and he says, I've called you by name. I've redeemed you. You are mine. See, I challenge you to read scripture from now on like like the Father will, the Heavenly Father looks at Mason. I dare you, I dare you to not see how he sees you. And whenever we see how he sees us, it doesn't put the, the focus on me. It shifts it back on him. He's the redeemer. He's the deliverer. He's the rescuer. He's made me right standing. And doing so will transform your behavior. If you want to fix behaviors, you focus on Jesus. You meet Jesus. And behaviors will start to fall in line. See, I, I'm a big believer in speaking things over yourself every day. I bought my entire family years ago a sheep rug and they all have it by their bed. And I have a sheep rug that lays beside my bed. And when I get up in the morning, my feet hit the floor. And almost every morning, the first thing I do before I get out of that bed is I say, Lord, 
I'm your sheep and you're my good shepherd. And I quote over myself almost every morning, Ephesians 2 verses one through 10, because I need to repeat it over myself. I was dead in my trespasses. I was dead to my sin. I was by nature an object of wrath. I was following the course of the world and the prince of the air, but God. And the word but means everything before is irrelevant because of what comes directly after God. But God, being so rich in mercy has made me alive in Christ Jesus. Wow. He has seated me with him in heavenly places. He has saved me by grace through faith. So I have no ability to boast. And he's done it all, all simply in verse seven to show me his kindness for all generations to generations. And then he takes it a step further and he says, you are my workmanship, my poema, my work of art to go do great works. That is my confession. That's my confession of faith that I have right standing with God. It's the most humble thing and the most holy thing that I can do. And my behaviors will fall in line with that posture. You see, Jesus says, you've heard it said, that you're a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner and you must prove your worth to me and earn your way to my, my position. But I say to you, I love you. You're forever righteous and you're mine. Will you stand with me? Lord, as we worship this morning, as we sing these words of your reckless love, and as the author of this song says, that, that you're not reckless, but these words feel so reckless. Your grace, righteousness, feels so incredibly reckless. And yet you, the God of the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords, you call us righteous. So as we come and worship this morning, as we come to the rails or sit in our seats or stand, we lift our hands in a posture of humility that says, I am your beloved son or daughter and you call me righteous and you have seated me with you in heavenly places and I'm going to live like that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.